All right, who here has seen Disney's newest feature film, Encanto? I knew I'd see some over here, here. Now, I know it's hard to remember anything about this year's Academy Awards ceremony besides the slap heard around the world, and we won't be going there today. But Encanto won Best Song this year for its very catchy number. You want to sing it with me? We don't talk about Bruno, no, no. We don't talk about Bruno. Composed by the one and only Lin-Manuel Miranda. And like the rest of the Madrigal family from which he hails, Bruno has a magical power. Reading the future. Which sounds like a pretty cool power to have, except whenever Bruno foresees something that is bad, and tries to warn his family about it, he gets blamed for it, as if his prediction is what caused the bad thing to happen in the first place. And for that reason, we don't talk about Bruno. No one in the family has seen him for years. His place at the table is empty, and under no circumstances is he to be discussed. It's too painful. It stirs up so many feelings, hurt, anger, grief, that it's almost better to pretend like Bruno doesn't exist. Family psychology would call that a cut-off. When someone we've been in relationship with may still be alive, but we think of them as long gone. Perhaps they've done something that feels unforgivable. Perhaps we tried to help, but they took advantage one too many times. Perhaps they were their own worst enemy. Perhaps they, or we, and probably both, just couldn't admit that we were wrong. Whatever the reason, the wound was not able to be repaired, and now there is this emptiness that is too difficult to feel, too difficult to talk about, and so we just don't. I wonder if the actual reason this song is so popular is that subconsciously so many people can identify with that experience. Have you ever had a place at your table like that? Was it something that was talked about? Or have you ever felt like you were the one who was persona non grata, no longer welcome, no longer worthy of a place at the family dinner? I mention all of this because our gospel today, you may have noticed, begins with a very curious phrase. When he had gone out. Do you know who the he is in that sentence? It's not Jesus. Jesus is not gone anywhere, not yet at least. He's still in the upper room with his disciples with whom he had just shared his last meal. If this reading sounds strangely familiar, it's because this is Maundy Thursday, the night in which Jesus was betrayed. And the he, beloved, 
The one who went out is Judas. He has gone out to do what he was going to do. Jesus knew it. He still washed his feet. He still gave him the bread and wine. This is my body. This is my blood. But for whoever is telling this story, at least, it's as if from now on he cannot even be named. We don't talk about Judas. Do not let his name touch your lips, or so it feels. He is out there now in the utter darkness, and that is his choice. He is no longer one of us. What happens to him now? Where does he go? That's not our concern, we tell ourselves. It's too hard to think about. It's definitely too hard to talk about, and so we just don't. And it's into this space, to this group of now 11 disciples, but with Judas's chair still warm and sitting there, empty and tucked back in under the table, that Jesus gives his new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. By this will everyone know that you are my disciples. What could love possibly mean in this moment? One of my teachers and mentors, Fred Needner, once reflected in a lecture, quote, have you ever wondered whether upon hearing Jesus' new commandment about the way the disciples should now love one another, if any one of them went out into the night looking for Judas in order to extend that love to him? Did anyone fear for him or miss him? Or try, even after he brought soldiers to Gethsemane, to bring Judas back to talk him out of his shame, his anger, his rapidly deepening personal hell? We have no way of answering that question, and maybe we don't know how to. But Needner suspects that even if someone did try, they didn't find him. To this day, he says, it seems like no one has found Judas. He means that, of course, in a metaphoric sense, right? Where Judas is a stand-in for all of the various cut-offs in our lives, all of the empty places at the table, all of the friendships that ended over angry, hasty, bitter words, all the betrayals that never had a chance for reconciliation, like Peter had a couple of weeks ago. For each of us, Needner says, at least one Judas wanders about in the night, unforgiven. What does it mean to love one another when the family is not whole anymore? What does it mean to love as Jesus loved us? I know that Jesus calls this the new commandment, and commandments are the language of the law. The law, as Luther taught, does not comfort us necessarily. It convicts us. It shows us our need for God. But maybe that's just it. Maybe the point of this isn't that we love each other perfectly as if such a thing was even possible. 
Maybe these words from Jesus simply reveal what we already kind of know about ourselves, that our love isn't perfect, that we are estranged from one another sometimes, that even if we don't talk about it, we do secretly yearn for that place at the table to be filled again. And for that to happen, we need someone to go out into the night searching. Our gospel today identifies this moment, the moment of Judas's departure, his going out, as the moment in which Jesus' glorification began. Now, we often use that word in a kind of triumphalistic kind of way, but in John's gospel, Jesus' glorification is sort of code word for his death. Jesus will be glorified, that is, his true nature will be revealed when darkness covers the whole land, when he loses his life, when he gives himself up. That is how he loved us, as John says. He loved us to the end. You know, it's so ironic. So often when I'm talking to people, friends of mine who are not religious, and I ask them about their perception of Christianity or religion in general, their image is very often of a group of people that find their identity, their purpose, in judging other people. A group that rejoices in its own self-righteousness and is perfectly content to consign others who think or act or believe differently to that utter darkness. Now, there's certainly a brand of Christianity that does that. But the picture that Jesus paints couldn't be more different. The followers of Jesus are the ones who are never at peace until all the places at the table are filled. If our love is to look anything like his, we should be the ones who never give up hope, who always stay up waiting for our loved one to come home, who keep on saying their names even when no one else wants to or will. And that's because we are the ones who have been entrusted with his mission to go out, to keep on searching, to make no distinctions between people, as that Acts reading reminds us, and to call no human being unclean until all are safely gathered in. By this will everyone know that we are his disciples. The church is not the church, beloved, if it imagines that some empty places at the table will be empty forever. It does not bear witness to the love of Jesus if it consigns anyone to the outer darkness and is content to leave them there. The church is the living sign of that wedding feast in Revelation where every tear is wiped away, death is no more, and there is no more mourning or pain, presumably because all who were lost have been found. Perhaps to love one another as Jesus loves us is simply to hold on to that hope, to not fall prey to the very human tendency to write people off, to imagine that those who see the world differently from us are somehow irredeemable, or worst of all, to sort of root for their punishment. Although we're living in times that 
positively encouraged that. I recently read that the algorithm that drives things like Facebook and YouTube and Instagram actually raised to the top content articles with words like so-and-so destroys so-and-so or obliterates someone else with their argument because people click on that. A fight is supposedly so much more satisfying than a reasoned debate. But we don't have to live that way. We don't have to deepen the already vast divide. We don't need to define who we are over and against some other people who we deem unclean. In that world, humanity remains broken. Families remain broken, not reconciled. But we have known a higher love. The love that met us in Jesus, that love that went out searching for us when we sold our birthright for a momentary gain, just like Judas. The love that was never too proud to keep on calling our name. Now that love lives in us. We are the bodies through which Jesus loves the world. And not all the world in some general sense, but the world that includes that person from whom we are most estranged. That wedding banquet is set for us this morning, beloved. It is a foretaste of that feast to come where everything and everyone are reconciled. As you kneel today to take your space, Speak the name, if only in your heart, of the person you are waiting for. Hold that person before God. Know that the gift that you receive is for them too. And with hope in the resurrection and that new heaven and earth that Jesus is already bringing to birth, we dare to trust that one day the rift will be healed and we will all eat together. Amen.